Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I'm so thankful for the baptism we got to see this morning. Such a precious thing. And I know many of uh, that family is there. I'm so grateful for that. Uh, One of the things I don't like about three services is that there's a lot of things that happen that you don't see. And so you did get to see one of those baptisms this morning. But I want you to know in our next service, we have six baptisms all from our student ministry which is really great. So six students who have come to give their life to Jesus Christ and are going to be baptized this morning. So we're very thankful for that. Uh, So I want you to know that God is moving in different areas of our church and really grateful to see how he's doing that. There is a children's book that has been in our house for quite some time. I don't really know how we got it or who gave it to us, but uh, almost all of our kids grew up in some way reading it. It is a book called Fool Moon Rising, not Full, Fool, F-O-O-L, Fool Moon Rising. It's the story, uh, the classic old story, of an arrogant moon. A moon that likes to boast and brag about all of the things that it can do. It likes to brag that it is the brightest light and the greatest light. He brags about all the songs that have been written about him and all the songs that have been written to praise him. He boasts about his ability to change his shape and even the power that he has to change the tides. He talks about his power, his magical ability to show up at some times and disappear at other times. It shows pictures of people gazing up into the stars, looking for the moon and talking about the moon. He even brags that astronauts have danced on him. And he talks over and over how he is the greatest light. And in a way that only a children's illustrator can do, it shows this picture of this arrogant looking moon with this grin on its face as if to say, I know how wonderful I am. Then something happens. One day, the moon gets a glimpse of the sun. And it begins to see the ray of light that comes upon him. And for the first time ever, he realizes that he's not the greatest light, that he is only a reflection of the light. And he begins to cry and weep and to repent of his pride. But the beauty of the story is that in the midst of what he has discovered about himself, he's not crushed. He's not crushed now that he doesn't know who he is any longer. He is finding his true joy and his true identity and all delight in reflecting the greater light. And so in seeing the real light, he begins to see himself more clearly, and in seeing himself more clearly, he now lives for something greater. True delight in reflecting the light. That is exactly what John 1 talks to us about. John 1, 9 says that Jesus is the true light. That we've been created to reflect the light of of Jesus Christ. That is why we exist. We have been created in God's image to bear his image. And we find our true identity when we come to see the light. One of the things we've talked about a lot in John chapter one is that no one has the ability to see Jesus. They see him as a man, but they don't see him in his glory. They don't see his brightness. Uh, They don't see who he really is unless through the power of the Holy Spirit, God turns the light on and we're able to see him. And so it is, in a sense, all of us are walking around like the arrogant moon until we discover a greater light. And the goal is, is that through coming to know Jesus Christ, we would not only see the light, but the light would help us to see ourselves more clearly. And that we would come to a place in which we find that our truest identity and our truest joy, our truest joy is to be reflection of the glory of Jesus Christ. And when we get to that place, that is the place of life and joy and incredible freedom 
when we're no longer consumed with self, but we know that we exist to give glory to another. And there may be no example of that any greater in all of the Bible than the one we see today from the life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was introduced to us a few weeks ago uh, in verses 6 through 8, and we talked about that there. Look at what it says in verse 6. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, not the apostle John who wrote this book, but John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And then it says in verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then takes us back to talking about Jesus. We're introduced to John there, which would not have been a surprise to anyone who's reading this, because John was prophesied. There were Old Testament prophecies that one day a messenger would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 40 tells us about that. Malachi 3.1 tells us about that. Malachi 4.5 tells us about that. As a matter of fact, you may remember that the Old Testament ends right before 400 years in which God said nothing. 400 years was ended with a statement that one day someone like Elijah is going to come. He will prepare the way for the Messiah. And so this idea of this witness who will prepare the way was expected. Yet his actual arrival created quite a stir. It's understandable. He, he came in pretty hot. He came in making quite a statement with everything that he did. I mean, he didn't look like anybody else. He came in and his dress was a long robe made of rough camel's hair with a leather rope tied around him. And everybody dressed in a sense like that, but he looked rougher than everybody else. His diet, we know, was honey and wild locusts. He appeared to be a simple, kind of no frills, wild outdoorsman walking around. But what was noticeable is not just how he appeared, which was noticeable. He looked different. What was noticeable was what he was doing. His preaching was hard and it was authoritative. Not like the preaching that they had grown up hearing in the temple. He spoke with confidence and clarity and he called people to repent of their sins. Even more shocking than that was that he was baptizing people. Even more shocking than that, that he was baptizing Jews. You see, the only baptism the Jews would have known about is what was called proselyte baptism, meaning if Gentiles wanted to believe in the Messiah and join the Jews, then they would have to demonstrate through baptism that they were being cleansed from all of their Gentileness and being brought into the Jewish faith. And so they knew about baptism, but it was never for Jews. It was just for Gentiles. And here's John the Baptist baptizing Jews. That didn't make any sense. And he was gathering a following. There was a lot of people following John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, we'll see this next week. Two of Jesus' first disciples, including the one who wrote this book of John, followed John first. And in following John, they heard about Jesus and then followed Jesus only after they had been attracted to John. And so all of that helps make sense of our text today that people were wondering who this man was and why he was doing what he was doing. And that prepares us for what we're going to see this morning. Look, starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? 
We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had sent, been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Talking about Jesus at his baptism. I myself, he says again, did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now that is a beautiful picture of someone who is living, constantly deferring the attention from self, but for the glory of someone else. Someone who has found their identity, not in themselves and in their accomplishments or in the praise and affirmation of others, but someone who is so settled in who they are, is so confident in who they are, that they are able to quickly answer the question, who are you? That when someone says, tell us about yourself, they have an immediate answer. Why? Because they have found their true sense of identity in Jesus Christ. And the freedom and the joy that comes to the one who can get to this place. This, the place of, of not being consumed with the attention and affirmation of, of others. Not needing to be constantly held up and propped up by everyone else's statements about us. To be totally fine if no one notices us. And to rejoice in the idea that someone wouldn't notice much about us. But they would see Christ through us. The joy, the freedom of that kind of identity and settledness in who they are is exactly what John experienced. The freedom of not being consumed with self, but being consumed with something greater. And so my question is, how did he get there? <laughs> how did he live that way? Well, the text answers it for us. The first way is this. John knew who he was not. Get that down. John knew who he was not. As a matter of fact, he is often called the not prophet. He is most often known for what he's not, even more than what he is. You notice how often he says, I am not, I am not. No, that is not me. And it happens even before that when it says in verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So four times we're told what John is not. And John is very clear about what he's not. Now, the whole feel of the text feels like John is under investigation. He's on trial. Now, I need you to hear me on this. This is going to be important for us because when we get to the end of the message, you're going to see how that idea of being on trial relates to you because John is experiencing what most of us experience, and that's this idea of being on trial and kind of investigated as to who our true identity is. Who are we? 
And so John's being asked, there was a delegation sent from the religious leaders. We know from verse 24 that the Pharisees had heard about what John was doing and they were concerned. Here's a man preaching, baptizing, gaining a following, threatening the establishment. And so they send a delegation to ask him, and here's what they do. They come in verse 19 and they say, who are you? Now, a simple question, but a deeply profound question that's very difficult for almost any of us to answer. Who are you? Where do you even start with that? Well, John was ready. Look at verse 20. It says this kind of threefold declaration. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. What that shows us there is his readiness to answer this question, his certainty as to the question, his confidence, his courage in saying it. I think the reason that's there is to show us he didn't hesitate at all. He was completely ready for that question, who are you? And immediately, without any hesitation, He acknowledged something that he was not. Because oftentimes, the most important thing to know is who we're not before we even know who we are. And so he says, without them asking this, I am not the Christ in verse 20. They wondered. I mean, this is all the things, in a sense, they thought the Christ might be doing. And they just thought if if he's not the Messiah, then why would he be baptizing? Why would he be preaching repentance? Why would he be gathering a following? But he said, I'm not the Messiah. And their next guess is, well, what then? Are are you Elijah? It's a legitimate guess. He looked like Elijah. He dressed like Elijah. He preached like Elijah. He was doing miraculous things like Elijah. And remember, Elijah didn't die. Elijah was lifted up in a chariot of fire. And there was a promise that someday one like Elijah is going to come. And so certainly this guy's Elijah, who's finally come back, to which he says, I am not. Well, are you the prophet? If you notice the definitive article there, the, the prophet, it says it again, uh, as the prophet Isaiah says, and then it says it again in verse 25, if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, that's a reference to Deuteronomy 18, when uh, we're promised that a prophet like Moses is going to come. And so they were waiting, not only on the Messiah and on Elijah, but they were waiting for this mysterious prophet who would come. Are you the prophet, the one who was promised to come in Deuteronomy 18? His answer there is even quicker and more certain. And he answered, no, no. So emphatically, very quickly, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not Elijah, and I am not the prophet. And at this point, until he's pressed further, he doesn't say anything else. He just leaves it there. Here's here's what I'm not. Now, there's a few things that, that really amaze me about that little moment there. The first is this. The religious leaders have been hearing about John and watching him. And they sent a delegation to find out who he is. Now listen to this. In knowing what they know about him, about his message, about the way he lives and acts and ministered, they had three guesses to who he might be. A, the Messiah. B, Elijah. Or C, the great promised prophet. Now can you imagine someone has three guesses as to who you are. And they guess maybe the Messiah maybe Elijah, or maybe the prophet. That's an unbelievable thing, that with three guesses, they guess those people. And I think it just shows us a little bit of the authenticity of John's ministry. They didn't think he was a quack. They didn't think he was crazy. They didn't think he was some false prophet. They were hearing what he was saying and watching his ministry and genuinely needed to ask, are you Elijah? Like, have you come back? Isn't that an incredible thing? Just a a beautiful picture of, of what they thought about him and the way in which he ministered But I'm also amazed that John was so ready for the question. 
he knew how he dressed and he knew he was different. He knew the way he acted. And so he knew people were going to say, who do you think you are? And I think the significance of verse 20 there that he immediately confessed and did not deny but confessed is that he was ready for this moment, knew exactly what he was going to do, and he didn't, didn't hesitate for a second. He immediately said, I'll tell you exactly who I am not. I want to make sure that one thing is clear. You know that I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. He was ready for that. But I think more amazing than all of that is that he didn't take any, even a little bit of the glory. I mean, it would have been easy to, to say all of those things, but still take a little bit of the glory. Many, many have said that, in a sense, this is John's wilderness temptation. Jesus went to the wilderness and was given an opportunity. If you'll bow down to me, Satan said, then I'll give you all the glory. He'd had an opportunity to do that, but he resisted that temptation. And so it is that John the Baptist is given a similar moment when he's got an opportunity to take some glory. Like just a little bit of glory, a little bit of attention but yet he passes the test and he doesn't take any of the tension or any of the glory. I mean, he could have said something. Well, I don't know. Am I? I mean, he could have just left it out there for them to wonder just for a moment. He could have said, wow, a, a, whole, delega a whole delegation coming. That's a pretty significant thing. I, I am kind of a big deal. I have disciples, you know. I mean, I just, ha I know me. I would have taken a tiny bit. Like maybe not all of it, in a good moment, maybe I would have given a lot of it, but I would have taken something. I don't know if you've noticed all my disciples or how many people are getting baptized through my ministry or did I tell you how big our church has grown? Like something, I would have taken something. He didn't take any opportunity to get an ounce of not even anything. He didn't let them say anything about him. He immediately just defers it. Why? Because he just knows who he's not. And when you get to the place where you know who you're not, it really changes the way you act and live and talk. But he also knew who he was. It's the second thing we see. He knew who he was not, but John knew who he was. That's verses 22 through 28. So they press him, who are you? And this text is just filled with some really simple but really profound questions like, who are you? Tell us about yourself. And see, they're even pressing him in verse 22 we know who you're not, but tell us about you. Now they have to press him to say something about himself. He would not have said anything about himself had he not been pressed a second time. We want to know something about yourself, self, self. He was not going to say anything because he was deferring attention from himself. But finally they pressed him, who are you? We have to give an answer to those who sent us. So what do you say about yourself? And then it begins in verses 23 through 28 to tell us, what he thinks about himself. The first thing is this. He says, I'm a voice. Look at that in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John understands who he is. He understands that he is part of the prophecy of Isaiah 40, that one day a voice would come. But think about the beauty of that first statement particularly thinking about the context of the gospel of John and the first name were given for Jesus. The first thing Jesus is called in John is what? Let's say it a little bit louder than that. Does anybody know? The first thing Jesus is called in John, I'm a total absolute failure. All right, it's right there. He's called the word. Let's say it together. The word. It's like six sermons on that. All right, the word. I'm gonna just assume none of you were here and you didn't hear any of those. I did great. You just didn't hear any of them. Here's what... See, there I go, trying to get some of the glory. You see that? It's just in me. Just... See, here's, here's what John says. I'm a voice. I'm not the word. I'm a voice. Like, I don't 
Like I don't have any, I'm not the word. I don't have anything significant. I'm just, I'm the voice that's telling you about the word. And of all the things he could have said, the first thing he says points us back to the fact that Jesus is in fact the word. He is the one that brings life and light. And John says, I am not the word. Let's be very clear. I am simply a voice that has come to bring you the word. I'm a voice. Second thing he says is, I'm a a preparer. I've come to prepare the way. Because they say, well, if you're neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, who are you? John answered them, verse 26, I baptize with, with water. So the significance of that is John has come to prepare hearts. And part of the preparing of hearts is calling people to repent. It's been 400 years since God said anything, and now God is on the move. God is stirring, God is moving, something is about significant is about to happen. And so John knows that he has been called to be the preparer of the word who is coming. And baptism was the way in which he prepared. He said, listen, someone is coming. You must repent of your sins and get right with God. You will not be prepared for the coming of the Messiah unless your heart is right. And we know previously from all of the the sermons that you listen to intently that most of the people didn't see Jesus. The ones that saw Jesus, most of them had been prepared, like two of John the Baptist's disciples who left him and followed Jesus. They were prepared. Why? Because Jesus had prepared them. We're going to see this next week. Why is it that immediately when Jesus walks up, two of John's disciples leave him and follow Jesus? You know why? Because they were prepared. Because John had told them over and over, I'm not that big of a deal. Like, I know you're following me, and that's great. That's part of the thing. But don't get excited about me. This has nothing to do with me. There's someone that's going to come, and when he comes, you leave me and go to them. And John found his joy in that because he's a preparer. He says, I'm the voice. I'm a preparer, but he's also a pointer. (laughs) What do I mean? Well, he's not the point. He's the one who points. He is the pointer. Verse 27, he says this. He said, there's one coming that you don't know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. It's such an amazing thing that he would choose that of all the things. Because in the first century, there is one thing that was too demeaning for a servant to do. And so a master would not ask even his servant to untie the strap of his sandal. A servant would do that. I mean, a master would do that himself. It's the most demeaning thing you could ever imagine. And so what John does is he says, listen, think of the most demeaning task that you could ever imagine. So demeaning that no servant would ever do it. I'm not even worthy to do that for the one who's coming. I think our first thought may be that John has a problem with low self-esteem, but that's not the case. John has high Christ esteem. So John is not thinking poorly about himself. He's not saying I'm nothing. I'm an idiot. Nobody loves me. I'm a moron. I'm not worth anything. He doesn't say all the stuff that we often say inside of our heads. He doesn't say any of that. No, he's super settled in exactly who he is. He's absolutely confident in his calling. So he's not dealing with his low sense of self. He's just dealing with this high exalted view of Christ. And so what he's saying is not I'm terrible. What he's saying is this. Listen to me. You're impressed with my preaching and my baptism. Know this. There is someone coming who is so much greater than me you can't even imagine it. He's so much better. He's so much greater. And so I only exist to prepare the way for him. So your hearts are ready for when he's come. So so stop looking at me. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm simply here to tell you someone coming who is so much greater and so much more glorious. I exist to magnify the greatness of that one. You're impressed with me, but you can't even imagine the one who's coming. 
So it is not John putting himself low, it is John putting Christ high because John knows who he is and he knows his place. And so part of John's settled identity and joy comes from he knows who he's not, he knows who he is. But more importantly, thirdly, John knew who Jesus was. Do you remember the story at the beginning? It is only when you see a ray of light that you come to understand yourself correctly. And so the real significance of John's identity and John knowing who he is is that he sees Christ correctly. And in verse 29, he gets the real opportunity. Here it is. Now the next day you see Jesus coming towards him and said, behold. And the reason he says behold, behold is like sounding a trumpet. Behold is like a declaration. Behold is the way to say, look and listen to what I'm about to show you and say. And what he does then is says, everybody behold, look. And he points to Jesus, the Lamb of God. And he says then, here's who Jesus is. And he begins to describe to us in verses 29, all the way through our end of our text, here's who Jesus is. He tells us three really profound things. He says, first of all, Jesus is the lamb. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, there's a lot of debate on which lamb this is. There's a lot of lambs in the Bible, if you know this. You can do a lot of study on lambs of the Bible. There's a lot of lambs, a lot of Old Testament lambs. And so people ask, well, what exactly was John referring to? Which lamb? To which I would say almost all of them. In other words, there was so much more to what John was saying than we could ever imagine. And John understood those things. So when he said, behold the lamb, he was saying, here's the lamb of Genesis 22 that God provided when Abraham had Isaac on the altar and was about to slaughter him. And God said, wait, I'll provide a lamb. Jesus is that lamb. Jesus is the Passover lamb of Exodus 22 that when slaughtered and the blood placed upon the doorpost, the wrath of God would pass over you. Jesus is that lamb. He's the lamb of Exodus 29 that was sacrificed every morning and every night in the temple and the tabernacle so that the people's sins could be forgiven. He is the lamb of Isaiah 53 who was oppressed and afflicted and did not open his mouth but was led to the slaughter and crushed for our iniquities. He is that lamb. And he is also the lamb of Revelation chapter 5 who was slain for our sins but now rules and reigns over all people and all of heaven rejoices and bows at the glory of that lamb. He's all of those lambs. And so every time you read about the Passover lamb, it's pointing us to Jesus because what it says is this, unless the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to your heart, you will not escape the wrath of God. The only way to escape the wrath of God is not doing enough good things, but receiving the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his blood shed for you, applied to your life, so the wrath of God now passes over you. Why? Because of what Christ has done for you. Because his blood washed over your heart and cleansed you from all sin, and now you are viewed by God the Father through the lens of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be saved. What it means to be saved is, Lord, I want the blood of Jesus applied to my life. Lord, would the blood of Jesus Christ save me from my sins? Jesus is that blood. He is that Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb. He is the lamb of Isaiah 53 that was crushed for your iniquities. And even though they did not fully understand it here, he is the lamb of Revelation 5 to whom everyone one day will bow. To whom every nation and every tongue and every tribe rejoices and sings, worthy is the lamb. 
He's the lamb that was slain for the sin of the world, meaning that there's only one sacrifice that can save us from the wrath of God, and is the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the one who will make a sacrificial and substitutionary atonement for us, meaning he will die sacrificially in our place so that we're not taken up and absorbed by God's wrath. So John says, behold, there's the lamb, the promised lamb of God. But he also says, there's, there's the light. Where do you get that? Well, I get that from verse 31. There's a strange phrase here, and it's strange because if you know the context that John and Jesus were related, he says, I myself did not know him. You think, well, that's weird. I think you probably did know him. And then in verse 33, he says, again, I myself did not know him. They were related. I think what John is saying is this. He knows Yeshua that he grew up with. He knows the, he knows the boy. He knows the young man. He, he knows the teenager. He knows him. They were related. Their mothers were related. He knows him. But what happens in us had to happen in John as well, which means that he was only just a man until God allowed him to see the light of the glory of Christ. And so this was a guy he grew up with and he knew him and he was just Yeshua. He was just a man. He was just a boy. And then all of a sudden, one day at some moment, God allowed John to see the truth. It was revealed to him, as he says later in the passage, he says in verse 33, I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, that's the one who baptized with the Spirit. So what he's saying is this, although I knew him, I didn't see him. And so here's the reality, is that most people know who Jesus is, but they don't see him. He's just a man. They don't see his glory. They have never been captured by a ray of the light that will come and help them to see their true identity, who they are and who they're not. And the only way that happens is by the power of the Holy Spirit, there's a supernatural work of God where he allows you to see Christ and yourself clearly. If that has not happened to you, then you must ask the Lord to do that. Lord, help me to see the light of the glory of Christ. You are the one who created light. Help me to see it. So John knows that he's the light. He's the one who has come to reveal himself to Israel, verse 31. But he's not only the lamb and the light, he is the life. He's the life. Look at what he says. He says, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain on him. And then he says this, I baptize you with water, but there is someone who is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the one, this is the son of God. So what does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Well, the rest of John is going to flesh that out because in John 6, 63, he says this, the spirit gives life and the flesh is no help at all. In John 3, 6, he's gonna say the flesh gives birth to the flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. What John is gonna say over and over is this, and we've talked about this a lot. You're born spiritually dead. You're dead and you can't bring yourself back to life. That's impossible. You can't bring yourself back to life. So what happens? At some point, you are brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what happens at the moment in which you give your life to Christ, the Spirit of God comes to dwell in you, bringing you to new life, and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not some second work of God that we're waiting on to receive more of the Holy Spirit. At the moment in which you came to Christ, you were baptized in the Holy Spirit. If that didn't happen, you wouldn't be alive. Spiritual life comes from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what John is saying, listen, I'm immersing you in water, but that's just a picture of what Jesus has come to do. He is immersing you in the Holy Spirit. And can we be filled with more of the Holy Spirit as we seek to walk in purity and say no to sin? Absolutely. And we'll talk much more about that later in John. 
What John wants you to understand is that if you're a believer, you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you have not, then you don't have any spiritual life. So John is saying this, there's the lamb and there's the light who reveals himself and there's the one who has come to bring life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because spirit baptism is the supernatural work of God by which God brings us into new life. He unites us with Jesus, he indwells us, he seals us, and he unites us with the church of Jesus Christ, those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. So what John says is this, look, look, I'm just a voice, I'm just a pointer, I'm just a revealer. There is the lamb who is slain for you. There is the light who has come to enlighten all people. There is the life who has come to take you from death to life, from darkness to light. And you will remain in spiritual darkness and spiritual death unless you leave me, John says, and go follow the light. Behold, there he is. Now, the more I I just immersed myself in this text this week, the more I just thought, without any personal application, that's a great text. Just the glory of Christ and the settledness of John the Baptist and his clarity on who he is and on who Jesus is and on who he's not. And there's just so much there to rejoice in. And if the only call of this text was just to rejoice in the Lamb of God and to rejoice in the light and the life, that would be enough. That's significant, but that's not all God wants us to see. Because the goal of this text is that we, like John, would also find our true identity and joy in Jesus Christ. The goal is that we would see the light that we would have a moment like the full moon did and we would get a little glimpse of the glory of Jesus and what would happen is that we would be crushed under the weight of our own pride but instead of it destroying us, what it would do is it would bring us to new life when we realize there's something so much better to live for than myself. When all of a sudden a life that is so self-consumed that exists for praise and attention and affirmation and needs it every moment just to stay emotionally afloat. What if all of a sudden that person died and what rose in its place is a true identity and joy in Jesus? That's the goal. And I want that so bad. I want that for you so badly. And the way it happens is the same way it happened for John. We have to understand who we're not. We are not the light. We are not the center of the universe. We are not the masters of our own destiny. We are not worthy of constant praise. Listen to this. This is a small but significant statement. People do not exist to serve you. They don't exist to affirm you. They don't exist to give you attention. They don't exist to feed your ego. And the reason I think it's so important to talk about what we're not is because we are an image-obsessed culture. If that wasn't true, social media would not exist. Social media exists so that you can get people for just a moment to think about you. And so that you can create the narrative. They would would give a picture of you that is probably not the accurate picture. Why? Because we're obsessed with what people think about us. And we need the affirmation. We're so empty and shallow inside that we're just desperate for someone to look at us and say something great. To say something about our worth and our value and our dignity. Just someone to feed our ego. But that's not why we exist. That is such a shallow way to live. That is such a disappointing and sad way to live. That is such a joyless way to live. That every moment of the day just desperate for someone to affirm me. 
It's amazing how crushed we can get when we don't need to get the affirmation that we think we need, but we are not the light, nor are we the ones that should seek the glory. We exist to defer all of the glory, and we actually find our greatest joy in coming to the place where we realize the goal of life is not for me to get the attention. Because we not only understand who we're not, we understand who we are. We are the moon. We are the reflectors of the glory of God. We are a voice. We are the one who is pointing the way. We are created in the image of God to bear his image. We are created to love and to serve and to give ourselves sacrificially every moment of the day to make Christ known in everything we do. We exist so that through us, the glory of Christ might be seen. I want to remind you, and this is really important, John did not struggle with low self-esteem. That's not the issue with John. He just didn't esteem himself. He just chose not to esteem himself. He chose not to live with himself up here and a need for everyone else to serve him and love him and affirm him. He just didn't esteem himself highly. And that's not because he had a low view of himself. It's because he had a high view of Jesus. And this is why we can never understand our true identity without seeing Jesus. Because our true identity is found in the identity of Jesus Christ. The goal is not to think I'm terrible. I'm meaningless. I have no value. No, that's demonic. The goal is to simply to say that I exist to defer the glory in such a way that everyone that sees me gets a little picture of Jesus it's not just to think about yourself as less than you are. It's just not to think about yourself very much. I think if we were to listen throughout the week to our inner monologue and how many times we're saying things about ourselves and how many things we need from others about ourselves, I think we'd be amazed at how self-consumed we are. Tim Keller, in his wonderful little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he says this. He says, the goal is not to think less of yourself but to just think of yourself less. Just not spend so much time thinking about yourself, not posting so someone would think about yourself, not being irritated because someone didn't notice what you were wearing or affirm what you look like or notice your new haircut or whatever else. Like just that stuff doesn't even exist. Can you imagine the joy and the freedom of that? And the reason I told you to remember the idea of John being on trial, which he was, and the trial was this, who are you? Tell us something about yourself, who are you? Listen to this and we'll be done. The reason you need to remember that is because every single one of us live almost every day with that trial going on in our head. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And we almost live out of the sense of needing to prove this and answer this question over and over, yet we don't know who we are. And so you just watch teenagers who are this and this and this and this, and they're changing who they are, and they're constantly needing to do something else, or they're constantly buying things or doing things to fill this emptiness inside when the truth is this. Listen. At the cross of Jesus Christ, that trial ended because the verdict was in who you are is a beloved child of God. Perfectly adored and cherished and loved by God. And the goal is this, that that would be so real to you. This living, loving union with Jesus is so real that you don't need the affirmation of others because you have God looking at you as he did his son saying, you are my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. And you're just settled in that. And you're okay with who you are because you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And God says, hey, you're okay. Stop living in this constant treadmill of comparison and competing, contrasting yourself with everyone else. Please stop living in that way. Just take a deep breath and know that you are a beloved child of God Instead of thinking about yourself, just live in the freedom of making sure that all the attention goes to someone else. 
It is the freedom of joy and joy of a life not consumed with self, but consumed with Christ. God has given us both a symbol and a reminder of this life. The life in which we die to self so Christ might live. And this is practical. Every day we make a choice to serve and not be served. Every day we make a choice to die so that Christ might live through us. And the way in which God has reminded us that is, uh, is through baptism and communion. The reason baptism is the first act of obedience, and let me just, I want to plead with you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and have not been baptized, you have to be baptized. It is the first act of obedience for a believer. You have to be baptized. Because what baptism is, it's your first opportunity to publicly say, I want everyone to know I'm going to die to self to live with Christ. And, and the reason it's public is because you don't privately die to self and live for Christ. You say publicly, I'm going to surrender myself and my rights and I'm going to know that I've been buried. My old life has been buried. I'm raising to walk in this new life that I have in Jesus Christ. I know who I am and I'm a child of God. And I want everybody to know who I am. And a refusal to be baptized is a refusal to identify with Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're baptized. And then communion it's just this constant reminder that it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ and broken body of Jesus Christ that I am beloved of God. And it's almost as a communion just allows me to just take a deep breath and say, I'm okay. Not because of who I am, because of who Christ is. I don't have to live for the approval of others. I don't need that. Why? Because I have the Father saying, I love you. And I'm proud of you. I'm so glad that you're mine. Communion reminds us that it is through the death and only through the death of Christ that we find our true identity and joy. Let's bow our heads for just a moment.